Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. We've discussed some big topics during the course of this project, but we've not directly touched on one so big, so multifaceted, and so important, as is the problem associated with reaching the correct psychiatric diagnosis. Mindy Rosenblum is a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown University, and she is here to talk with us about this problem. Dr. Rosenblum, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Dr. Strauss. I'm pleased to have the opportunity to discuss this really important issue for patients and for doctors. Before we go further, if you feel you have been incorrectly diagnosed, please discuss it with your doctor or get a second opinion. Okay, is a diagnosis, or rather getting a correct diagnosis, is that really such a big problem? Why does it happen? In my opinion, myself included, when I was in a previous position, sometimes you inherit a patient and you just assume because the other person's a good clinician that they came to the right impression or maybe the patient uses a quote-unquote diagnosis. I just did some oral exams this week with the residents and they'll sometimes ask the patient, what's your diagnosis? I find that I'll run into trouble if I'll do the same thing. So rather than asking about the diagnosis, I ask about current symptoms or past symptoms. So I make it symptom-based or historically-based, have the patient tell their story. And then I can come to my own conclusions rather than the patient sharing it or my reading it from a predecessor. I try to get a safe impression, but I think if we inherit a patient or the patient from the get-go tells us on the phone that's their diagnosis, we kind of go with it. One would think that we would all come to the same diagnosis, but this really isn't the case. Right. Well, even in our own psychiatric history, I remember when I was in training, we would talk about psychosis and schizophrenia, and in certain phases of bipolar illness, there could be psychosis. People had trouble teasing the two out. So rather than focusing on one symptom, try to think of it broader. It's like a camera. Take a more panoramic picture look at family history, look at functioning, look at how the episodes fall. Don't get caught on any one symptom. For instance, in the case of major depression versus bipolar depression, sometimes we heard the word depression and we already assume it's a unipolar depression, etc. We have to pull back and ask about other associated symptoms or symptom patterns. A lot of times we just stick with one symptom and we explore it. We want to hear a little bit about that one and the pattern, certainly, but then we should have a little bit of a differential. So, for instance, if I was an internist and someone talked about coughing, I wouldn't say, oh, yeah, it's just allergy. I'd have to ask questions about all the different reasons why we might cough, and it could be fairly broad. It could be a pneumonia. It could be TB, unfortunately. There's a lot of reasons why someone might cough. There's been a lot of discussion lately that we miss between 15 and 40 percent of the bipolar disorders because people present as a depression. And people don't talk about their manic episodes. They like that. They don't like their depressed episodes. What do they present with? A depression. This is really a misdiagnosis. The important thing about getting the right diagnosis is it drives the treatment. If we stick with the wrong diagnosis, we might be putting the patient potentially at harm or certainly at risk or worsening their quality of life or prolonging the treatments. Even if they present in the depressed phase, even if we know the patient fairly well and we've asked it before because there is a lack of insight or they like that phase and it doesn't seem like they're ill, particularly if it's a hypomania and not a mania, we have to ask the same questions again and say, do you realize right now you have low energy and no motivation and feeling quite sad, but can you think back five years ago, 10 or 20? And that's where it's sometimes helpful to get a release of information, 
previous providers if they exist or loved ones or significant others because they might know the history and that might guide us, particularly if the patient isn't able to share it. We live in a world now where we are looking for the instant one-session diagnosis. Mm. And you get an hour to see a patient, that's it, and it's come and it's gone. That must be very frustrating for you and, and for even for the students that you are teaching. Absolutely. So in our old oral exams, the way that you and I have taken it, it was a half an hour, and then a bunch of strangers asked you a question who are, you know, well-known psychiatrists from all over the country. It's anxiety-provoking because it's an exam, but also you knew you only had a half an hour. How much can you call? As psychiatrists, I do have to say we listen to the patient and we observe the patient. So we do see things in terms of their body language and their facial expression and their movement. And sometimes we are fortunate to get some old records beforehand and I ask patients to send or share or bring with me information. For myself, I've created a system in my practice where I can chat with them for a few minutes on the phone beforehand, but I try to use that hour as wisely as I can. Of course, as psychiatrists, we want to form a relationship or rapport with the patient. For instance, someone might be coming in and it truly might be some form of an anxiety disorder. It doesn't mean there isn't a second one or a third. So sometimes in that first hour, we might have to focus a bit more on understanding the primary symptom that made them call to get this particular appointment. But they might plant a seed and we need to make a note and inform them when you come in in the next visit. I do want to explore this other issue. And sometimes it's a situational stressor. It might be substance related. It might be health related. But if I can't get to all of it the first time, because unfortunately some of our patients might carry more than one, I do try to inform them because they might have an interplay between the two. I try to ask the patient to participate, and I might have them read something or look at something as well just to see if that sounds like what they're going through. A lot of people see a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. How much of a problem do we have with misdiagnosis because the social worker will see it as a social issue and the psychiatrist wants to treat it with an antidepressant? Those can be two very different worlds, and one could be completely wrong. You're completely right, and I think it's an area that I'm very passionate about, and when I was switching to my private practice, a peer of mine actually said that's the thing to be most careful about, who are you buddying up with? So it's easier when there are a number of therapists of a variety of different degrees when you know that they're careful about the diagnosis and take time. There are psychiatrists that have common diagnoses and they call everybody bipolar or PTSD or whatever would be, OCD or ADHD. And similarly, that happens on the therapist side. So I do think we need to get releases from the patients to share information. We have to question things. I know a lot of times the therapist wants to chat beforehand, so if a release is in place, that's helpful. And I make an effort at the end of my first appointment to write a quick note saying I met with Mrs. Jones. These were the symptoms. We're going to make it about symptoms. I write about that diagnosis we agreed upon on and what our plan is. And then my final line is, please touch base with me if this isn't jiving or if you have any updates. Collaboration is key. We need to be sending the same message. And I don't only want to say with the therapist, whether it's couples or family, individual or group, but with the medical providers as well, because sometimes they might be calling it something different or using using some medication that might be jeopardizing our care. I had a situation recently where a gentleman had been in an accident and he felt quite anxious and couldn't sleep. And by the time he got to me, he'd seen multiple providers and was on a couple of milligrams of Xanax. 
it turned out that he had driven, and instead of driving like 40 minutes, he drove like a couple states away. He was so confused, and he fell down, and it was an immediate need for me to collaborate, but now we have a whole nother problem. <laughs> if I had just treated his anxiety and sleep, he would likely still be in jeopardy, so we need to be communicating, getting our releases. It's important that they share who else is a part of the treatment, both from a therapy point of view and other medical providers. And part of the treatment, and I'm curious as to how much of this is brought up when you teach residents and medical students, are the multitude of cultural and religious and situational issues, the notions of immigrants and and their kids and what happens when they have problems. How are we doing in terms of of our sensitivity to these variables in understanding the presentation of a symptom. Anxiety in an immigrant child may be a completely different thing. A pill may be completely wrong. And you're completely right, and it's an area that I felt very deficient in. You just touched on the perfect topic for me. I teach the anxiety disorders to the first and second year residents, and because of certain experiences in my training, I had an attending who had done some rotations in New York and was familiar with certain immigrant groups. They would bring in a shaman or how they would react to illness and how that was incorporated. I decided to add into one of my lecture series special populations, and one of the populations were cultural groups. I know in Rhode Island, we need to get maybe two credits, which is not even enough, every two years on cultural issues. In my area, the Portuguese population happens to be very prevalent. So now that I'm in practice for a fair while, I'm not aware of everything, but I am aware of some of the issues because we can cause something like you said, anxiety or psychosis that really is usual, I don't know if, I don't like to use the word normal, but customary reaction to a certain situation. So I try to raise issues that an Alaskan might have or somebody might have in Peru or in another culture that we're not familiar with, but for them, it's quite important. If there is a known population and it's large enough, I think over time we're going to understand it. If not, we do have to turn to someone who has expertise. Someone lands in your community that's from, let's say, Ghana, and I don't know those customs. So I need to, again, either reach out to a family member or someone else who knows because I will make an error. For the most part, 90-something percent of my population, I have an understanding. Interestingly, there are some patients who sought me out because they know my religion or my background and felt that they would feel more comfortable. So I think on the part of the patient, it's also a good idea, if that would be helpful, to seek out a provider that might be from a similar background. And it might lead to some shorthand or some terminology or an understanding of certain stressors in that culture that the therapist would understand. I totally agree with you. When I was in training, there was a member of my group who was Cuban. And whenever we would get someone from Cuba whose English was not so good and Spanish was their primary language, we'd call him up and he'd walk in and he'd put his hand up. He said, I understand where she's coming from. This is a critical point. And I don't think mental health focuses enough on the background issues. Seeing a psychiatrist for five or 10 minutes and there's already a cultural issue or a language issue. Oh my God, we're set up for all sorts of problems. Right. I have to say that was one terrific part when you're working in a larger practice where you could have providers of a variety of different backgrounds since you don't want someone just to interpret, but they also bring to it that cultural understanding. And then when they explain it back, no matter what degree they had, whether they were someone at the front desk who didn't have a mental health background or a case manager or some other form of clinician, they usually could embellish it. 
to what it means if you tell someone if they have cancer or that they have bipolar. What does that mean? And you're completely stigmatized or it's misunderstood or you were segregated in the community. Good point, because if we give a diagnosis, the diagnosis has to influence the person. We usually do not think sufficiently about how that diagnosis is going to influence the person when they go back home. Part of the reason for non-compliance is that the family disagrees or the family doesn't back it up or it's difficult for them to accept. To me, in terms of mental health, there is a real ripple effect in terms of their significant others and their partners and family members and how they react. So as much as we can get them on board, there was a new patient for me. I had to meet separately with the wife once and probably two or three conversations already, just getting her on board to understand because some of her behaviors were counter to what we needed to achieve for my patient. And that doesn't always have to even be cultural around substances in a family and someone's trying to get sober, but the system makes it difficult. So that would be a similar, but there are cultural influences as well. Are there clusters of psychiatric ailments that are overdiagnosed, generally speaking, and underdiagnosed? I would say yes, and it almost seems to be at times in vogue diagnoses. And so as much, and I do endorse some of the ads, and I think for the most part it's helpful, but I can even remember years ago when there were some ads for social anxiety when Paxil was being launched, it was one of their indications, and a patient who had paranoia saw it and said, oh, I think I have social anxiety, and it sounded like that, and the patient thought that's what they had. The good thing is it brings them into treatment, but then you have to go beyond the cluster. Right now, what do I think some of the hot diagnoses are? And I think they're both overdiagnosed and underdiagnosed, interestingly. Something like bipolar, attention deficit disorder. There are certainly others in addition. I often see that social anxiety is missed. So again, as I mentioned, maybe something like substance abuse but it was started because they felt anxious at school or at work or with family, and then it landed to a secondary diagnosis, and we stopped there. We didn't look at the main diagnosis that was driving it. One of the major areas where this comes up is in the courts. Experts will get up, and one person will say the person's malingering, and the other person says the person is not malingering, or they have a depression, they don't have a depression. This is so confusing for the general public. Why do two supposedly equally trained experts come to such different opinions? I have to say it's either that they're not getting old records or the patient isn't sharing accurately or they're not looking beyond the patient because there might be a motive one way or the other. And unfortunately, there's a bias. Sometimes someone's been in a motor vehicle accident. And really, it wasn't the person's fault. The other person definitely whacked them right in there. But it's kind of hard to give up the back pain until the case is resolved, whether it's subconscious. You're coming at it from a certain angle. And so there's a strong bias. I think it's always helpful to get this outside opinion that doesn't have any strings attached to just get a clear picture. Because when you're an outside person and you do go criteria-based, the majority of the time it's clear. And when it's not clear, we either have to run the case by a colleague or if we're in a supervision group or suggest to the patient, it seems like this, but it's atypical. I'm going to ask my colleague just to either review the record or can you meet with them. And then I like to carry out the treatment and see what was correct. But there are clinicians in my region, or if not in Rhode Island, but in Boston, they do. They just take a very careful look. They gather all of the charts. They spend a prolonged period with the patient, and then they explain it to the family. And I think that's an important service. 
there has been the term thrown about called confirmation bias. And this is when any diagnostician tends to stick to their initial diagnostic impression regardless of subsequent data. And this is a very troubling issue because the patient may be stuck in something that's really not in their best interest. It happens more than we would want it to, and it reflects the general population sometimes, uh, how should we say this, hesitancy or a little bit of cynicism about the diagnosis that we give to people, especially if it's too quickly done. I think that the impression that the public gets or other medical providers get of psychiatry is unfortunately based on the very small percentage of clinicians that do these rush diagnoses or misdiagnoses, and then they globalize and they become suspicious of those of us who even try to be very careful. And so I'd rather take an extra appointment if I'm really not clear or say, look, these are the few things I'm thinking about. I think you need to get a little bit more records, right? think about it or follow it a little bit more over time. Part of it has to do with insurance, too, because sometimes patients don't want a certain diagnosis on their insurance or on their paperwork, and so they don't want you to put on the billing slip the proper diagnosis. They want you to give something a little bit more vague, like an adjustment disorder or such, and then the patient never truly understands either. Or some doctors don't use a diagnosis. They just talk about a symptom, and so the person never was quite clear. So I had an attending when I first was in training that is a very bright, brilliant man, knows how to work well with patients, his family work, etc. But he really wasn't into the DSM, whatever it was back then. And so here I am, a resident, and I knew I had to do the paperwork end. And he would throw out terms that weren't proper diagnoses. And to him, in his bias, that wasn't important. But in some ways, it is because I think the education, and if you go to the right sources on lifestyle changes or decisions that need to be made, can be driven based on your diagnosis. For instance, when a patient leaves and they have a rash, we try to tell them what kind of rash it is because there's certain things you're going to do or avoid, and I think it's similar in psychiatry. So the practitioners who feel it's really not that important, and no matter what type of psychosis it is, we give an antipsychotic, that's not the right approach. One of my attendings used to walk around and say, what is your provisional diagnosis? Every day is, what is your provisional diagnosis? Has your provisional diagnosis changed in the course of the time that you've seen the patient? And he would say, there's an initial diagnosis, there's a middle, and there's a final diagnosis. And you know, I didn't remember this until now when we're talking, it just popped up into my head, but it's exactly what you're talking about. I think it's interesting, too, because you've reminded me, uh, similarly, when I was in training back in the Stone Age, didn't seem like we had as many diagnoses. I laugh with the billing slips. Sometimes they'll send it back if you didn't put it out to the fifth digit. Getting to the proper category, whether the fourth and fifth, if it's single or recurrent or seasonal or this, you know, sometimes it makes a difference, sometimes it doesn't. And certainly from a financial point of view and reimbursement, it really shouldn't. But for the most part, at least we should be getting them into the right ballpark. I think sometimes because a patient appears on certain medicines, we assume because they're on lamictal that they're bipolar. And the previous provider could just be giving lamictal for whatever reason. Doctors and nurse practitioners or clinical nurse specialists will make assumptions based on their medicines of what their diagnosis is. And a medicine like Abilify can be used in schizophrenia and bipolar and major depression and Unfortunately, that's another way where some clinicians base their diagnosis. I just try to act like it's a fresh start. 
one important comment I will make that I think is important that I learned as a student too is, and I didn't like it back then, but when I was in training and I was at one of the mental health centers for a number of months, there was a one-year annual evaluation, but there was a five-year review. And some of these patients were quite chronic. I mean, the chart was probably half your height, you know, to, to stack them all up. But the good thing was that there are trends or understandings and diagnoses or symptom complexes that maybe even every five years can change or the history or symptom pattern is different now. And so as much as it seemed like a punishment, I think it taught me something to step back every so often, whether it's annually or every two years or certainly in my case when I meet a new patient, is just to start fresh just re-ask, is this still the proper diagnosis? Mindy Rosenblum is a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown University, and she's been very helpful in exploring and being honest about a lot of the problems that we have when we want to do a solid, accurate, valid, and reliable diagnosis. Dr. Rosenblum, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.